You're listening to the Principal Meet Practice podcast from Singularity University. I'm Kyle Nell, and this season we're partnering with our friends at INSEAD to bring you deep conversations into the realities of managing through uncertainty. Each episode will feature an expert whose focus is on the theory behind a topic and a practitioner who is out on the front lines actively bringing these concepts to life. We'll cover topics from the future of retail to the education crisis and more. Let's dive in. Today, we're going to cover the topic, Sustainable Organizations with Ryan Kushner, who is the co-founder and director of startups at Third Derivative, and Carola Vidugan, who is the director of Sustainability University Foundation. So creating a sustainable organization is imperative in today's world. I don't think anyone's going to argue that. But we're living in a critical time to action against the global climate crisis, which has dire effects on ecosystems, agriculture, and humanity. If that isn't enough to push your organization to go sustainable, consider this. 88% of consumers prefer companies that help them live more sustainably, according to a 2018 survey. Need one more reason? It's a trillion dollar economic opportunity. So today we'll talk about why and how your organization should go climate neutral. No small topic. Welcome, Ryan Kushner. Ryan is an expert in climate technology commercialization and acceleration and the co-founder and director of startups at Third Derivative, D3, a joint venture between Rocky Mountain Institute and New Energy Nexus. D3 now has the largest cohort of climate tech startups in the world. Thanks for being with us, Ryan. Great pleasure to be here. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work you're doing at the Third Derivative? Happy to, and I'm quite proud of it. Um, I've been working in sort of the climate technology accelerator world for a long time. Out of, um, and I should talk to you about this, Carola, after going to the Presidio MBA program, which is a green MBA, I got really fired up about climate change, and then I was stuck with a dilemma because it's really hard to work on climate because it's so inclusive of everything. And I had the opportunity to work in a climate tech startup, and then I moved to my first climate tech accelerator called Elemental Accelerator. And I've just been going really deep down that world because that's sort of my lever for change is creating effectively systems that make it easier for entrepreneurs to, first of all, make products that people want. And so good companies that are doing well by doing good that are all in the climate tech space. And so the third derivative is the newest incarnation of various programs that I've worked on. And it's the biggest and most ambitious program that I've been fortunate to work on. We just launched a couple months ago with 47 climate tech startups in our portfolio. And they range from everything from energy and storage, transportation, industry, industrial processes, the whole gambit. So nature-based solutions, really anything that's sort of touching fossil fuels or efficiency. We're now supporting those 47 startups into rolling apps and growing the program, staffing up. I mean, we're taking a really big swing at the whole sort of I call it the idea to IPO path for entrepreneurs. We need to create three to four Teslas every year for the next decade to hit 1.5 degrees. And that's not going to happen unless we have a system for supporting entrepreneurs. That is incredible. I have so many questions, but I'd love to bring our other guest, our second guest, Carola Vidugan. Carola is an entrepreneur, author, owner of Seven Roles. She's the co-founder and director of Sustainability University Foundation and former chief sustainability officer of NS Dutch Railway. And she is a big believer in the power of business to accelerate transition to a sustainable world. Welcome, Carola. You recently released a new book called The Seven Roles to Create Sustainable Success. Can you tell us a little bit more about the book and why you wrote it? 
Yes, of course. Uh, pleased to be here. And um, why did I write this book? Well, I wrote a book with the future of my two daughters in mind to inspire and support the companies and business professions that want to play a role in creating a more sustainable world, which is very needed, as you said also in your introduction. And I truly believe that companies can and should play an important role in creating this world where people have a decent quality of life within the boundaries of our planet. Fortunately, actually, a growing number of companies are aiming already to play an important role in creating this world. And my book is, as you said, about the Seven Roles Framework. And this framework has guided me and many other professionals around the world in our journey to lead the way to sustainable business. And I truly hope that this book will support other potential professionals to create sustainable success in their business as well. And with that, speed up the necessary transition to a more sustainable world. Very, very exciting and incredibly necessary. Obviously, this is very exciting. Well, let's just dive into a little bit more into the specifics of actioning against climate change now as an organization. You know, for I think the vast majority of people listening and specifically, you know, the population at large, climate change has been looked at more of as something that happens in the abstract, something that's happening in the environment but not necessarily as something that's attached to an organization, right? Or something that people do. And I know that we all believe that people are the drivers of these things, um, both for good and bad. So Ryan, for some of these listeners, this might be a new topic. You know, this, uh, this idea of climate change, action against climate change as an organization. What do the terms carbon neutral and carbon negative mean? If we can just kind of get into some of the, the specifics here. It's a great question. And it kind of gets confusing a little bit. Carbon neutral generally is that... You're a company, you run some servers, and so you're going to pay for offsets through some kind of forest initiative or whatever it is to then draw down that carbon somewhere else. So that'll get you to carbon neutrality. Carbon negativity is just sort of going past that. So it's just doing sort of your basic carbon accounting, saying as an organization, you know, this is our impact because we sort of inevitably have to use fossil fuels somewhere or have some kind of waste stream. And then from an accounting basis, you know, how much is that and how much can we do to offset it? And so Carla, why is it important for organizations to start on this carbon neutral or negative journey now? Yeah, that's a very, very interesting and also very important question because I believe that more than ever now is really a crucial moment for business to lead the way. I can think of at least three reasons why. First reason would be that since 2015, companies actually know what to aim for because there are international agreed frameworks in place which business can use, such as the Paris Agreement and the UN Sustainable Development Goals. They provide business with a global agenda, including targets on CO2 emissions. And in addition, there are more and more guidelines for responsible business and transparency frameworks for non-financial reporting and carbon, carbon disclosures that have been developed. So there's more, there are more guidelines and frameworks. So this is the first reason. The second reason is that, well, especially in Europe, the political will is more visible than ever. So next to the Paris Climate Treaty and the UN Sustainable Development Goals, there are also projects such as the European Green Deal and other national zero carbon development plans that offer a huge potential for business which are willing to contribute to a sustainable world. And then the third reason, which I think is the most important reason, 
is that for companies, there's a very clear business case for yeah. engaging with sustainable strategies. And uh, you can see that companies which understand and improve their impacts are better placed to manage, for instance, operational, regulatory, and reputational risk. So to give you an example, sustainable strategies such as pollution prevention or product stewardship reduce, for instance, cost and risk and enhances reputations. But also companies that use sustainability as a driver for innovation and they develop sustainable technologies or business models, they can really create new markets and attract also new customers. And last but certainly not least, a sustainable narrative inspires and attracts new talents and partners. So all these strategies add value not just for the stakeholders, but also for the shareholders and create a meaningful contribution and have a positive impact both for the company and for society at large. So it's not just important, but it's also very smart of organization to start on a carbon neutral or negative journey right now. That was amazing. That was incredible. So many things in there that I yeah, want to sorry. talk about more specifically. <laughs> but there's so no, many no, 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 reasons no, that's why. <laughs> there's so no. It's all and the, the thing is too. It's uh, all interwoven, right? It's you can't look at one thing in the abstract and in the ether. It's it's it's, it's got to be all interwoven together. So yeah. I, I love how we're talking this together. So Ryan, you know, for those that aren't still convinced, I mean, I'm I'm convinced um, after after Carola's very well put together framework for thinking through these things. You know, to the hardcore capitalist that's listening to this right now. Can you tell us more about the economic opportunity in solving these sorts of problems? Absolutely. The big picture is that we're really fortunate and we live in a world where technology gets cheaper. The more you produce, that's sort of Swanson's curve or Moore's law. And that's what's happened with renewable energy. It's a technology. Fossil fuels don't really get cheaper. The price, there's efficiencies, but that's all been squeezed out. Renewable energy has gotten so cheap so fast wind, solar, batteries. Now it's moving into electrolyzers and affecting a hydrogen economy and so, so on and so forth. We're really fortunate because that's happened. The world has not made a great moral effort to deal with the destruction that fossil fuels have caused. It's been really economics that's driven a lot of it. Not to say that policy and protest and everything aren't crucially important because they are, but we're at a time where it's really fortunate where not only are renewable energy technology is cheaper. And so you have, you know, 70 plus percent of all the new capacity in the U.S. last year was renewable energy, and that grows every year, right? And so we're just inevitably getting to 100% clean energy. But we actually hit the coal cost crossover a couple of years ago, where it, renewable energy is so cheap, and there's no cost of inputs, as opposed to coal or now natural gas, that it actually makes economic sense to take an existing coal plant, tear it down, and spend the capital for a new renewable energy plant, which will produce more or less in round numbers, free energy for 40, 50, wow. 60 years. That's incredible. And that's right now? The math makes sense to do that? That's right now. Yeah. That's incredible. So that's really, really amazing. And I think this gets into, Carol, you said this, said this too, what is the sustainable narrative, right? For those that are listening to me, again, I'm really big on narrative and how that's the critical foundational piece to any kind of change, right? So what is the sustainable narrative? We're in this world now where we have a lot of the tools that we need. We even have um, a lot of the policies that we need. We have the frameworks, like you mentioned with the Paris Climate Accords, and we have the SDGs, and we have a lot of these things. But I don't know too many regular people that really know that these things exist. So what is the, the sustainability narrative in your mind? And 
how do we bring more people into that narrative if you think that's the right thing to do? Well, I think that's an excellent question because what I saw when I interviewed other sustainability professionals or sustainability leaders, they always tell me that the most important element in the transformation is to link sustainability to the core business of the company. But this is something you, I think you also said in your introduction, that it shouldn't be a side business, but it should be really be in the core of your business, of your company. So, for instance, if I can give you the example of the Dutch Railway. I mean, we used to be a mobility provider, and we changed from this mobility provider into a sustainable mobility provider. And in this way, we could uh, create value not just for our uh, customers, but also for our stakeholders and for society. Because, for instance, making all our trains run on 100% renewable energy, that was really valued by our customers. They loved it, traveling without carbon emissions in a train. Also, they preferred to travel more by train instead of car or plane because of its carbon neutrality. And this, again, reduced carbon emissions, which created value for society. So you can see if you link sustainability to the core activity of your company, you can really create value for your customers and for society at the same time. Can I push on that a little bit, though? So when you yeah, were at sure. the Dutch Railways, like how did you communicate that both to your executive team, to the people that were working at your organization, and then also to your customers and other stakeholders? Was this a concerted communications plan that was laid out that way? Or how did you communicate all this? Well, I created a sense of urgency to show that if we really want to be ahead of competition, ahead of mobility by plane or mobility by car, then we would really should make a difference in terms of sustainability because our customers really valued sustainable traveling. So I created a sense of urgency and I showed the business case, which I just you know, uh, told you about, that it's good for our reputation, it's good for our customers, it's also good for our work because they're really inspired by this. So there are many positive impacts if you integrate sustainability in your core activities. And in this case, the business case was really, really positive. Uh, persuade or convince the board that we should move ahead and make our trains 100% renewable. Or the power, well, the trains themselves as well, because we also have circular trains. There was not so much renewable energy available in the Netherlands, so we needed like 1.4 terawatt hours, which is as much as the, all the households of Amsterdam. So we really were challenging the market to come up with this volume. So the way of sourcing was also a very good example of how you can create a system which facilitates the increase of the production of renewables. So we did this long-term power purchase agreement with a green energy developer, and that had led to an increase of the production of renewables in the Netherlands as well. So, and this new way of sourcing was also copied by other companies as well. So it was not just, you know, the fact that more customers were taking the train and in this way, uh, reducing their uh, carbon footprint and also the carbon footprint of the lens. It was also a sort of a model to copy for other companies in sourcing green energy. 
That's, that's really, really cool. I love that. It's my own personal experience working with executive teams too, is that so many of these executives and folks on the board, they want to be part of this greening legacy. They don't want to be part of like destroying the planet by fossil fuels. They, they really, really, really want to have that as part of their, they're leaving yeah. behind, right? And so I don't think that can be undervalued. So that's really great. To yeah. See. And, and I think you really should, you know, go for a moonshot. So funny thing is, is that this is really a nice story is that the NS became with that the first railway company in the world with 100% wind powered trains. And my wow. CEO was so proud and so happy about it that he wanted to communicate it in also in a very original way. And he tied himself onto a windmill <laughs> and, <laughs> and we videoed that. And that video went viral on YouTube. So <laughs> I mean, of course, that's, that's the next logical thing. I think Brian and I both of us said, okay, well, we're hundred percent sustainable. Let me tie myself to a windmill. <laughs> I think that makes perfect sense. No, I love that. Yeah. That's, well, it had, had some impacts. <laughs> well, I mean, think about that. Your, your executive your CEO literally wanted to tie himself to this initiative and make that his part of his identity. I, I think that's really, really powerful. I think part of this larger, like, how do you get change to happen in, in a sustainable way? So Ryan, you know, on the other side, you know, Carla has been talking about working with large organizations and that's something I've spent my career doing too. You know, you, you've worked and continue to work with hundreds of startups trying to, as you said, make multiple Teslas a year, no big thing and corporate clients and accelerators, you know, what does it take to combat this climate change on a larger scale, you know, solving many of these things all at once? Just to say, totally feel you on the protest and what that means, not to say that isn't so important. I myself have been arrested at the White House, put away in a paddy wagon for the Keystone XL protest that happened a bunch of years ago. And the director of New Energy Nexus, Danny Kennedy, he used to run Greenpeace Australia and he has He's just a hero and has the most incredible war stories of his own personal acts to people that he has worked with and also people that have been subsequently um, murdered by fossil fuel organizations for their acts of protest, specifically in Africa. So a lot to talk about there. To get to your question, Kyle, and I appreciate that, to get action on a global scale, and I hate to be such a sort of economic rationalist around this, but there just has to be sort of a a rational choice that people can make that makes sense for them and their business. And so throughout all the various levers to pull, and that can happen through government policy, and that can happen through protests, which makes things just more difficult, sort of basic unit economics of choice and understand that people will make sort of a rational choice at the end of the day really is the thing. And so Germany deciding to have a feed-in tariff to making solar panels cheaper. Then that kicked off manufacturing in China, which then helped that scale. And now solar is the cheapest energy in the world, right alongside wind. And so to have change everywhere, there needs to be alternative products that are affordable and desirable. So Ryan, when you say though rational, are you saying self-motivated? Right. So like something that, 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 you know, Walmart and you're looking at a light bulb. It needs to make sense. That's right. That's right. It's going to be really easy. And I think this also gets into like the frameworks of how people make decisions, right? So like everything's not always the, what's the cheapest, but really what has the most value um, like intrinsic and extrinsic value for sure. And that gets into the Walmart discussion, right? So they're not always, people aren't always buying the cheapest light bulb. They're also buying the one they think that brings the most value. 
So I think that gets into the frameworks, right? So Carola, in your book, you know, you talk about the seven roles to create sustainable success. Can you, can you tech, talk to us a little bit more about what these seven roles are, like at a high level or just more about the approach? Yeah, sure. In 2010, it seems uh, not so long ago. It's only 10 years ago, but a lot has happened since then. I, I was the first chief sustainability officer of the Dutch Railway, and this position was entirely new, not just for me, but also to the Dutch Railway. And fortunately, there were at the time all several peers doing a great job in similar organization. I wanted to learn from them, and I started to ask them, how do you create sustainable success? And this is how the book originated, because after a few years, I found that although companies and situations might vary, these seven different roles, always the same roles, based on the scientific research and then practice, appears to be effective for every company around the world, which is pretty amazing, I think. And these roles are the networker role, the strategist role, the coordinator role, the stimulator role, the mentor role, the innovator role, and the monitor role. And if you really want to change your company into a sustainable company, you really need to know how and when, which role is needed, and also to alternate the different roles if the situation requires it. So I can tell you a little bit more about the roles if you want. Yes, please. Yes, please. Yes, okay. So this network role is about involving your stakeholders and engaging and growing your network. And the strategist role, because your stakeholders, they can tell you and they can show you where you can add value and how you should focus your strategy. And then in the strategist role, you, in fact, integrate sustainability into your strategy and into your core activities. We already talked a little bit about that. Then there's this coordinator role in which you, in fact, translate your strategy into the different business units and you support implementation, in fact, in a, through the formal channels. And then there's the stimulator role in which you challenge and inspire the organizational level and you bring the outside in, which is really, really important, especially with big companies. And then there's this mentor role, which is more, you empower the other, which is more on an individual level where you, you know, talk about with the procurement officer or with the financial officer and you ask them how would they integrate uh, sustainability in their jobs. So this is really important also because in fact, all those people, they, in the end, they have to do that. They have to act differently. And then there's this innovator role, which is interesting also, I think, for Ryan, because I think in the innovator role, and this is recognized, that, that, that's what I recognize from my role at uh, Dutch Railways, it's, you can really, as a big company, you can help entrepreneurs to scale up their innovations. And this is exactly what you do in the innovator role. And then there's this monitor role in which you, in fact, learn from reporting and also from information. And you need all these seven roles. You cannot do without one of them. And actually, you see that recent research of the sustainability universities show that professionals that are using all seven roles are actually doing a much better job in integrating sustainability in their business than others. That makes perfect sense, right? Because you have to have all the pieces so that you can make make something work. So yeah. it would make sense. You can't just have one without the other. Is there any organization that you think is doing a good job at doing this and anyone that comes to mind? 
I think the companies that are translating a sustainable strategy into concrete actions and innovation and not just talking about it, but really doing, that gives a way that they're in fact uh, using all seven roles. And I know this is a challenge for many companies, including the ones that you might call champions like practice of, of 25 companies in my book. And it's still a challenge for most of these uh, companies. A company that's really successful is a company that really links sustainability, not just to the core business, but also to their brand management. Mm-hmm. And brand management, and this is about the narrative that you talked about as well. You know, brand management can then be crucial to accelerate the integration of sustainability in an organization, especially when it's consumer-facing business. And my book is there a great example of Tommy Hilviger, because integrating sustainability and brand strategy resulted there in a very clear why then Mm -hmm. sustainability was not only inseparable part of their business strategy in fact the message was taking up in every relevant business communication rather than being brought as a separate message so this is you know the companies that know very well why they exist and they have an inspiring sustainable moonshots are the ones that are successful because they inspire and attract clients, innovations, and also the entrepreneurs, I think, of, right. of, yeah, and the talents. So, yeah, you have to look for those companies. Yeah, which is not easy to do. Uh, no. A lot of entrepreneurs <laughs> the ones that have up the most, speaking from experience. So, Ryan, you know, you get pitched, like probably while we've been having this conversation, uh, doing this podcast, you probably got 10 to 20 LinkedIn in-mails from folks trying to pitch you on this or that. What makes a good entrepreneur in the clean tech space or clean tech entrepreneurship or sustainable entrepreneurship? That's a great question. Really persistence and people really being really dedicated. My sort of overall approach is that first time entrepreneurs suck. Yeah. Just because it's a whole world, like starting a business, there's so many things to learn and there's so much of a technical element and a human element and a legal element. There's just so many things to learn. So first time entrepreneurs really suck. I was a sucky yeah. first time entrepreneur, second time better, third time better. So someone that's just really committed to becoming a better entrepreneur, which is at the end of the day is being able to run a good organization and make products that people want. Right. And so that's really the human element is being able to, you know, like have a customer development process, understand product market fit, I work with entrepreneurs all the time that have a great technical solution, but really need so much help just understanding well, how do you how do you wrap a business around that, and how do you wrap a business model around that, and how do you just do all of the various things that make a product, which isn't the thing, it's it's your interaction with the thing that is the business. So I really respect people that just keep on trying, and so there is a bit of like a sort of bias towards entrepreneurs with previous successes doesn't tell the whole story, but it's a pretty good indicator. So if you've done something and you've had an exit and you've really been instrumental in that rather than just sort of like riding along, then that really pays. And so the systems that I've been developing through my work in various accelerators have been to try to continually put out a lot of educational materials. I have a huge list of free entrepreneur education materials that we use for our programs that also continually publish and give away. And that's sort of great for self-education. And then we also run the New Energy Network, which is 2,500 plus entrepreneurs and people and support organizations that is sort of like the social network 
for climate tech and that's sort of like a sticky community and so you can be a first-time entrepreneur from anywhere in the world learn try fail become part of that avail yourself of various opportunities so on and so forth so that as you sort of start to throw off the mistakes and become a better entrepreneur through time there's always going to be sort of like a next step so there's a lot of empathy really for what it takes to be an entrepreneur and clearing out the blockers it's really just sort of stick to and understanding people. Yeah, it's so interesting because I hear both of you say, you know, all of these things are really human leadership qualities, right? Uh, and experience. Um, it's not you got seven PhDs in this or that, but it's like you said, it's run a good org and make products that people want. It's really pretty straightforward and being able to demonstrate that. I love that. Can you talk a little bit about money coming in, especially venture and angel funds? I've been inundated, especially since the pandemic with funds and sovereign funds and family money, not my own family, but family offices looking to put their money and move them away from fossil fuels into these sustainable enterprises, specifically on startups, but they don't know where to put their money. Is that, is that a problem that you're seeing as well? And, and how are you dealing with the increased interest in, in this space? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, first of all, it's a great problem. There's a, there's a huge influx of money in the space. That's great. It's also fantastic because you can really make a return. As I was saying, you know, the world is just destined economically to be powered by 100% clean energy, right? And so, you know, average in the world, you know, it's anywhere between like zero and 50%, a worldwide average of maybe 15% renewable energy. And so all of that is going to become clean energy in the next 20, 30 years. So it's a huge opportunity. And rightly so, everyone should be a part of that. And we should democratize the gains and ownership of that as much as possible. And that's fantastic. And so for family foundations who are excited about the climate field now, great. My suggestion is to kind of work with the systems that are set up that are as advanced in this as possible. I think there's a bit of uh, maybe like an ego thing or an ownership yeah. thing mm-hmm. or a control thing where it's like, okay, well, this is our money. So we want right. to manage this and we want to be the heroes. You may be able to do that. You may not. You actually might be sort of stepping on your own right. feet effectively and not managing that as, as much as possible. And so I'd say, you know, for a third derivative, we have a SPV and it goes into all of our companies. And so you're sort of looking at us as the experts and you're trusting our ability, our, our ability to find and vet the best companies in the world that are all for-profit scalable enterprises that are sort of associated with what needs to happen in the market from a climate perspective. And so there's a lot of different ways to go. I would generally say they play along with the most fast moving and aware organizations you possibly can. If you really want to set something up, I don't know, call me. I'll help you think through it. That's great. That was, that was going to be my next question. <laughs> uh, what are the hallmarks, right? So it's so hard, right? Because you get into the muck and the mire and you start looking online and you go in through LinkedIn or you ask some friend of a friend. It's so hard to know who's real and who's, who's fake. It's, it's really difficult, especially in this space. If you're trying to go after, you know, creating the next cool app, there's, it's a little easier, but this, this is a little bit harder, I've found. Any other hallmarks, well, either of you, that you would suggest looking at and saying, okay, well, this is a hallmark of something that, I, that looks more legit than maybe something else? Is there something, if, you, if people are looking to invest, what they should be looking out for? First of all, do you have the capacity to really make a call, right? As an organization, have you looked at hundreds of companies? Do you understand the market? 
Do you understand the team? Do you understand the techno economics behind it? Right. If you don't, and you're willing to, I don't know, make some mistakes and mess things up for a while, that, that's fine. Or you think that whatever, like we just want to get money out the door and, and, and that's important to you. But I would really sort of say, work with people that know what they're doing and work with people that have experience because, you know, they call it hard tech for a reason. It's hard to make it. It's hardware, software. It's, you're generally touching maybe a utility or a grid and there's just so many sort of like hoops you need to get through from a technical lens and it's generally b2b sales and so it's just hard and so check yourself do you have the ability to make that call or should you really work with someone that does because while putting a lot of money out there as fast as possible should be your job you should also be doing it as intelligently as possible and looking for gaps that you can you can uniquely fill potentially that's really helpful carol did you say you had a question for ryan yeah, I was just wondering, because we talked a little about, bit about the pandemic and, and, and its effects. I mean, I really are, <laughs> want to, uh, a quick, clean recovery of our economy. What do you feel that is needed in order to get that green recovery? That's a great question. To be honest, I would need to sort of think about it a little bit more. Look at, if you look at it, it's basically two big sides. There's innovation and deployment, right? There's like we already have these technologies and they're just looking to scale and grow. That's deployment, right? The innovation side is also important because we need you know, three to four Teslas a year. Those might be coming from new companies, but they also need probably five years to ramp up until they can really sort of hit scale. And so there's an immediate sense and then there's sort of like a midterm plan. In the immediate, like what are we doing today I would have some form of carbon tax or carbon penalty in addition to state level or federal now as potential for a renewable uh, portfolio standard. And so just set the target and then have deployment move as fast as humanly possible to that goal. In the meantime, through Department of Energy or ARPA-E or third derivative, any of the programs just fund those organizations so they can fund the entrepreneurs and get technologies to scale that'll be filling in probably like the remaining 30, 40% of grid stability and various issues. As in like we can get pretty much to hundred percent renewable energy today with existing technologies. And that's great. We should do that as fast as possible. And there's going to be cheaper, better technologies and whole new economies like hydrogen in the next five to 10 years. That's really cool. Very exciting too. Well, I, I think for me, now we're kind of getting into like the bigger picture stuff, right? Which is for all the people listening, what would you say, both of you, what is the first action that someone listening should take today towards a more sustainable future? And I'm assuming it's not just turn off the water while you're brushing your teeth, but like what's something that they can do today? If listeners are working in a company or an organization, they could or maybe shoot, <laughs> trigger, or even accelerate its transition to a sustainable business. I think even if you're not a sustainable professional, but a regular business professional, you can really make a great difference. You can think of ways to do your work in a more sustainable or carbon neutral way. For instance, if you work at R&D or innovation, you can integrate uh, sustainability as driver for new products or think of innovations to reach sustainable goals. Or if you work at procurements, you can uh, source your products and services in a sustainable way. 
So there's so much you can do in your work at a, in, in a company to create positive impact. And if you are or you want to be a sustainability professional, even better than work with all the seven roles of the framework, they will certainly help guiding you in, a, in your journey to create sustainable success. And uh, I, I believe there is an increasing need for more effective corporate sustainability leaders who can speed up the transition. So I would say <laughs> start with it. Love that. Love that. Ryan, what would you say? I would say uh, my wife has an acronym called SPINE, and I'm going to mess up what each one means, but it's, it's an acronym slash backronym. And effectively, it's increasing your knowledge of what you read. So mm-hmm. every day, reading green tech media or grist, right? Just understand sort of what's going on and all the exciting things that are happening, assuming that renewable energy is your thing. See where your investments are, specifically where you bank because that mm. sends a big signal and you're either funding the new economy or propping up the old one. Mm. Make sustainable choices whenever possible. I mean, it kind of does come down to light bulbs at some point and just sort of being ethical and also sort of outspoken about that. But like think about like what you get and how you're modeling behavior for not just you, but for the people around you and have, have good justifications for that. You know, like Carola would understand this probably like greater, but like just organizations and where you work and everything. It's fossil fuels are just at this point, they're persona non grata, right? Mm -hmm. People don't really want to work with them. They don't want to talk to them. They're, they're dirty, evil democracy disrupting vestiges of the old world. And so let's embrace the new one and in your choices and in every little thing that you do, just have high integrity. What really helps is to set the default in new economy because, you know, it's, it's hard to always be very conscious and make the right mm. decision and be aware all the time about your own behavior. But if you just, you know, set the default on sustainable behavior or the new economy, for instance, you know, you just take your bike every day to the office if, if it's possible and not the car, you make the default more sustainable so that you are not tempted to uh, choose for the non-sustainable way. Well, thank you both so much. There's so many things to take away from our chat here, but the three for me were really, I would say the sustainable narrative is really important. Like what's the sustainable narrative of the organization, large or small that you work with of government that you're, that you live under uh, or live with, and then the, your own personal one too, right? So like, how do we make that our default, right? Makes things a lot easier when that's our standard and our default. And I love that. Uh, two, I would say for me, that sustainability is, is, has to be linked to your core business. And again, whether that's large or small, I think that's really, really important because if it isn't, then it just becomes this cute little thing that you can easily forget about for a while because it's really not that important. But if it's linked to the core business, I think that's great. And then the last one is, uh, is what Ryan said too about the human component, right? So having that persistence and that dedication from the individuals that are, that are part of this, whether you're the leader of that organization, you just work in that organization, large or small again, to run a good organization and to make stuff that make stuff and make products that people want. I mean, it's really just gets down to the simple things. If we want these things to really work they really have to work and, and it needs to make sense financially as well as for the planet too. So I thank you so much. Thank you both Ryan and Carla for, for taking the time to talk with me and with us today. 
you can connect with them and find resources they mentioned, including Carola's book, a link to her book in this episode in the show notes, or head over to su.org backslash podcast to find out more information. Thank you so much and see you next time. Thank you.